Shalom. I'm Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries, and we welcome you to the Hebraic Heritage Ministries Yeshiva Discipleship Program. In this teaching, we're going to be sharing with you on the subject of the history of the modern nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has a prophetic destiny, and it's linked with the realization and understanding that it was Yeshua, the Messiah, who made covenant with Abraham, as we are told in the book of Genesis. And then the nation of Israel is regarded as being the apple of the eye of the God of Israel. And they are likened unto a fig tree. And Yeshua explained that when this fig tree blossoms, that that is when he's going to return and when he's going to set up his kingdom. So when we look at the nation of Israel today, how do we understand the mindset of the people, the mindset of the government? And um, how do we understand all the dynamics that are going on within the country? Well, in order to do so, we need to understand the history of the nations because ultimately there is an encounter that the nation of Israel has with the nations of the world wherein it is prophesied that they will want to divide the land of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. This brings about the judgment of the nations and while the nations are being judged, the God of Israel is going to intervene and deliver and save his people. And while the nations of the world try to destroy Israel, it is the God of Israel who never slumbers nor sleeps. And so through these things, the Messiah will be revealed to his people and he in his coming will come to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel, bringing his people back to the land of Israel. So we are going to study the history of the modern nation of Israel as a background to understanding these things. So we begin by realizing that it was Yeshua who made covenant with Abraham. In Genesis, in chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 3, it is written, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get you out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you. And I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Genesis chapter 17 verse 1 it is written. When Abram was 90 years old and 9. The Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him. I am El Shaddai. I am almighty God. 
Walk before me and be thou perfect. So the one that is making covenant with Abraham refers to himself as Almighty God or in Hebrew, El Shaddai. And if we cross-reference Genesis chapter 17 verse 1 with Revelation chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, we can see that the one that appeared to Abram is Yeshua the Messiah. So in Revelation chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 it is written, Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, or in Hebrew, it would be the Aleph and the Tav, the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The beginning and the ending, says Yahweh, says the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come. And Yahweh in Hebrew means to eternally exist, to be. So, the Alpha and the Omega is Yahweh, who is, and who is also the Almighty, or El Shaddai. In Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 16, when Paul explains that it was Yeshua who made covenant with Abraham, he's making a quote, or he's making a reference back to Genesis, in chapter 17, verse 7 where it is written, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and your seed after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. And in the Targums, it is rendered this way, that the covenant that was being made with Abraham was being made with the word of God. And in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we see that the word of God is a term or a title for Yeshua. So it goes on to say, And I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land where you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. So Paul is referring to Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says, Not seeds as of many, but as of one. Into your seed, which is Messiah. Then it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, that if you are Messiahs, if you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, then are you Abraham's seed, and you are an heir according to the promise. So how are believers in Yeshua an heir of what was promised to Abraham by believing in Yeshua as the Messiah? Well, it's because whenever you accept Yeshua as your Savior and Lord, you enter into covenant relationship with him. And that covenant relationship is a marriage covenant. And so whenever you accept Yeshua as Savior and Lord, you're in covenant with him. And so then you are also in covenant with everyone that he's in covenant with. And he made covenant with Abraham. Therefore, in Messiah, you are Abraham's seed and you are an heir according to the promise. And Yeshua is going to fulfill the covenant 
that he made with Abraham. And there is a controversy in the end of days regarding who owns the land, where the nations of the world want to recognize Judea and Samaria, as it is called in the Bible, or the world refers to it as the West Bank. And they want to recognize the West Bank and East Jerusalem as the territory for a Palestinian state, that there would be a Palestinian state in the West Bank with East Jerusalem as its capital. And this is in conflict with the covenant that Yeshua made with Abraham. And so this is why the nations are going to be judged for dividing his land. And the nation of Israel, the nations of the world, and the people on the earth have a decision to make regarding whether they're going to believe and stand with the covenant that Yeshua made with Abraham, or are they going to disregard the covenant and try to make the claim that that covenant land belongs to somebody else. So this is how and why the covenant that Yeshua made with Abraham is linked with understanding the modern history of the nation of Israel. Now, the land of Israel is the heritage of the nation of Israel. As we can see in Exodus chapter 6, verse 8, and I will bring you in unto the land concerning which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it you for a heritage. I am the Lord. Now in Psalm 135, verse 12, and he gave their land for a heritage, a heritage unto Israel, his people. Israel is the apple of the eye of the God of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 32 Verses 9 and 10, it is written, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in a waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after the glory has he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. Israel is likened unto a fig tree. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree. When the disciples come to Yeshua... And they are on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. They ask of him a question. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world or the end of the age? And so in giving his answer, Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32, now learn a parable of the fig tree. The fig tree is a reference to the nation of Israel. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Verse 33, so likewise you, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. So now 
this brings us to the first century. If we are going to understand the modern history of the nation of Israel, we need to understand certain things regarding the first century because the events that happened in the first century, they influenced the founding of the nation of Israel and its leaders in modern times. Specifically, the modern nation of Israel was built by secular Jews because religious Jews were not interested in making an attempt to found a modern state of Israel because they believed that this could only be done by the Messiah. So in an article in the Jewish press entitled The Coming of the Messiah, written by Rabbi Shalom Kloss, he explained that there was a high Jewish expectation in the first century for a personal Messiah. He goes on to write in the article, the belief in a personal Messiah reached its highest tension during that period of the first century when Rome sent her despotic procurators to rule over Judea. The yoke was most oppressive and the Jews awaited a leader whom God would send to articulate their latent spirit of rebellion and free them from the Roman tyranny. In the first century, the Jewish people longed for a political Messiah who would free them from the oppression of Rome. Because of this desire, various Jewish groups rose up in opposition against Rome. Major wars were fought by the Jewish people against Rome in the year 70 and then also in the year 135. In the year 135, a Jewish military leader named Simon Bar Kokhba led a revolt against Rome. At this time, one of the most respected rabbis of the period, Rabbi Akiva, proclaimed the Jewish military leader, Bar Kokhba, as the political Jewish Messiah who would free the Jewish people from the Roman oppression. During that time, Rome was successful in winning every war against the Jewish people. As a result, Rome began to sell the Jewish people into slavery and initiated the exile of the Jewish people into all nations of the world. In the book by Moses Nachmanides, known as the Ramban, the book is entitled The Book of Redemption. He explains from Deuteronomy in chapter 28, verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far, from the ends of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you will not understand. And then verse 64, and the Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth, even unto the other. And there you will serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and stone. Verse 68. And the Lord shall bring you into Egypt again with ships by the way whereof I spake unto you. You shall see it no more again. And there you shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen and no man shall buy you. So 
Moses Nachmanides pointed out that these scriptures were fulfilled in the first century, and this is exactly what the Romans did to the Jewish people. That as is recorded in Roman history, that the Jews, among other things, they were uh, taken into Egypt with ships. And so, in part, these prophecies in Deuteronomy chapter 28 regarding what would be the consequence when the nation of Israel broke the covenant and went into exile was fulfilled by Rome in the events that transpired in the first century. So it's with this background, realizing that it was the Jewish people who longed for the Messiah to come and deliver them from Roman oppression. And there were uprisings against Rome Wars fought against Rome with the desire that the Messiah would bring the deliverance from the Roman oppression. And then from Rome defeating the Jews and because what it did to the Jewish people at large, there began to come into their mindset to not take a proactive uh, approach toward ending the exile and coming against those who ruled over them. But the mindset became one more of survival and to be passive and to try to get along with your enemies within the exile. And so that's the history and the context from which we need to understand the events in our modern times that led to the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. So we could also explain it this way, that because of the hardship brought to the Jewish people in fighting against Rome, losing the wars, being sold into slavery, and being exiled into the nations of the world, the Jewish people began to embrace the ideology of passive resistance against their oppressors from that time forward. This mindset continued to be prevalent in the late 1800s. In fact, some sects of Orthodox Judaism insisted that any return to the Holy Land or the land of Israel must be carried out by the Messiah and that to take matters into one's own hands would be blasphemous. However, anti-Jewish sentiment in Europe in the late 1800s began to change this mindset among secular Jews. This change in mindset and the desire for secular Jews to return to the land of Israel to escape oppression and anti-Semitism without waiting for these matters to be carried out through the rise of a political Jewish Messiah became known as the Zionist movement or we could see it as the Secular Zionist movement. What is Zionism? Zionism comes from the biblical word Zion. It is often used as a cinnamon for a love for the city of Jerusalem in the land of Israel. Jewish Zionism is an ideology that expresses the yearning of Jews all over the world for their historical homeland of Zion, the land of Israel. The foundation of Jewish Zionism is rooted in the belief 
that the land of Israel is the historical birthplace of the Jewish people and that Jewish life anywhere else in the world is a life of exile. Theodore Herzl is regarded as being the father of the modern secular Zionist movement. Theodore Herzl is the man credited with being the founder of modern Zionism. He was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1860. His parents, though Jewish, had no religious sentiment, and young Herzl was educated in the spirit of German-Jewish enlightenment of the time. Theodore Herzl studied law at the University of Vienna. After graduating in 1884 with a doctorate in law, he left law and became the Paris correspondent for the Vienna Free Press, a liberal newspaper. During this time, Herzl became sensitive toward the Jewish problem of anti-Semitism. In 1892, the famous Dreyfus trial began in Paris, France. Here, an assimilated Jew named Alfred Dreyfus on the French general staff was wrongly accused and imprisoned. Herzl witnessed the riotous behavior of French mobs and the public humiliation of the Jewish officer Dreyfus when they taunted the French Jewish army captain with shouts of death to the Jews. These events impacted Herzl so strongly that he became consumed with the desire for all Jews to have a national homeland to free them from social injustice and anti-Semitism. For Herzl, this meant a sovereign Jewish state. For the first time in his life, Herzl began attending Jewish religious services. And in order to seek to work on achieving this goal, Herzl published the book, A Jewish State. In 1896, Herzl began to communicate his dream by publishing The Jewish State. More than any other single factor, Herzl's book was most responsible for galvanizing the support of world jewelry for political Zionism. His solution called for individual Jews to immigrate to Palestine, buy land from the Turks, cultivate it into productivity, and build a Jewish majority in the land, and thus reestablish the Jewish homeland. In 1897, Theodor Herzl called the first Zionist Congress at Basel, Switzerland. It opened on August 29, 1897, and was attended by some 204 participants from 17 countries. At this time, the World Zionist Organization was established, and Herzl became its first president. Here, he officially launched the Zionist movement with a specific statement of purpose. The object of Zionism is to establish for the Jewish people a publicly and legally assured home in Palestine. Initially, when Herzl began to expound his ideas of having a central world organization so that Jews worldwide could move en masse to some yet unknown territory, he was met with stiff opposition from Eastern European Jews who dismissed the idea and thought that Herzl was crazy. Both Orthodox and Reform rabbis branded Herzl and his ideas as visionary but impractical. Nevertheless, Herzl continued to pursue his dream and spread his ideas. Herzl's greatest desire was for the Jewish people to have a national homeland to shelter them from the anti-Semitism that they have historically experienced in the nations of the world where they have lived over the centuries. 
Therefore, it did not matter to Herzl which country or territory was given to the Jewish people. Herzl's energy seemed boundless as he assumed the role of roving ambassador for the Jews in the highest places of government. No confrontation fazed him. He fearlessly challenged opulent financiers, held audiences with the Kaiser, the Turkish Sultan, the King of Italy, and the Pope. And he approached leading officials of Russia and Great Britain. With his unique polished demeanor, he became a diplomat par excellence for the Zionist cause. Herzl worked hard to find a territory for the Jews. At first, Sinai and Cyprus were two territories under consideration. In 1903, the British offered Herzl the area called Uganda because pogroms and oppression in Russia was increasing for the Jews during this period Herzl felt that a homeland in Uganda was a credible proposal. Therefore, Herzl submitted the Uganda plan to the Sixth Zionist Congress. However, this proposal met strong opposition and was rejected. The Eastern European Jews regarded it as a betrayal of the dream of settling in the land of Israel. So strong and hostile was the opposition to the Uganda plan that Herzl wrote a written commitment to abandon it. In 1904, Herzl died of a heart attack at the age of 44. For his efforts, Theodore Herzl became a living legend and became known as the father of modern Zionism. From here, Heim Weissman picked up the baton. He became, during the time of World War I, the new leader of the Zionist movement. After Herzl's death, the new leader of Zionism became Heim Weissman. Born in Russia in 1874, Weissman attended college at German and Swiss universities. In 1904, he began teaching at Manchester, England. Unlike Herzl, Weissman believed that a homeland in the ancient land of Israel was the only practical solution for the Jewish people. His reasons were not religious, but were derived from his perceived political realities. Just as Herzl's journalism caused him to be in the right place at the divinely appointed time, Weissman's chemistry talents caused the same thing to happen to him. Because of World War I, Britain had a need that Weissman was able to meet. When the Allies' supply of acetone to produce munitions began to run out, which was previously imported from Germany, the British staff called on Weissman to find some substitute. Following a two-year project, his team developed a superior synthetic that made a considerable contribution to the Allied war effort. Weissman's contacts with the Manchester Society and his supervision of mass production of synthetic acetone for the Allies' war effort gave him visibility and opened doors for him to make contact with high-ranking British government officials. These contacts included Prime Minister Lloyd George, First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, and Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour. Wiseman made personal appeals to these individuals to help him find a homeland in the ancient land of Israel for the Jewish people to further the cause of Zionism. The major result of Wiseman's diplomacy was the Balfour Declaration. It granted the Jewish people an international right to a homeland in Palestine with the help of Great Britain. The substance of the declaration was given in a letter to Lord Rothschild by the British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour on November the 2nd, 1917. 
in the Belfort Declaration stated the following. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavor to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which can prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Next, we're going to look at the significance of World War I and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. One of the significant events that contributed to the possibility of the Jewish people returning to their ancient homeland was the defeat of the Ottoman Empire in World War I. Because of this, control of the Middle East came under the rule of Great Britain. During World War I, Turkey was on the side of Germany. The British, through the leadership of Sir Edward Allenby, defeated the Turks and ended 400 years of Turkish rule over Palestine and 600 years of Muslim domination in the area. The Palestine Armistice was signed on October the 31st, 1918. This was 11 days before World War I Armistice was signed. This coincidence prompted Lord Balfour later to declare that the founding of the Jewish national home was the most significant outcome of the First World War. Next, we're going to look at the relationship between World War I and Zionism. Oscar Janowski has summarized this relationship between Zionism and World War I as follows. The First World War proved decisive in the history of Zionism. On November the 2nd, 1917, the British government issued the Balfour Declaration, pledging to facilitate the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Soon thereafter, the British conquered the country, and when the war was over, Palestine was administered as a mandate under the League of Nations with the United Kingdom as mandatory or trustee. The Balfour Pledge was incorporated in the terms of the mandate which recognized the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine and the right to reconstitute their national home in that country. Britain was to encourage the immigration and close settlement of the Jews on the land. Hebrew, as well as English and Arabic, was to be an official language, and a Jewish agency was to assist and cooperate with the British in the building of the Jewish national home. The British mandate was given international approval by the Council of the League of Nations on June the 28th, 1919. So in the map that you see here, the area in green was the area that was originally appropriated for the British mandate of Palestine. However, before its final sanction on September the 29th, 1922, the homeland projected for the Jews had been reduced to exclude Transjordan, 
when Great Britain created the state of Transjordan under the kingship of Abdullah ibn Hussein. So therefore, in order to satisfy Arab objection, this is our first instance of land being given for peace. Next, we need to look at the events that were transpiring in the land itself. And in doing this, we need to look at the contributions of David Ben-Gurion. While Weissman furthered the cause of Zion through his diplomatic contacts in the West, David Ben-Gurion became pioneer for Zionism among the people in the land of Palestine. David Ben-Gurion was born in Poland in 1886. He migrated to the land of Israel in 1906. In the land, he became the most active Zionist during this time. He became involved in the creation of the first agricultural workers' commune, which evolved into the Kavutza and finally the Kibbutz. He also helped establish the Jewish self-defense group or the HaShomer. In the land, David Ben-Gurion was a founder of the trade unions, and in particular, the National Federation, the Hista Drut, which he dominated from the early 1920s. He also served as the Histan Drut's representative in the World Zionist Organization and Jewish Agency and was elected chairman of both organizations in 1935. He led the Jewish Legion against the Turks in World War I. After leading the struggle to establish the state of Israel in May 1948, Ben-Gurion became prime minister and defense minister when Israel became a nation. With the dispersion of the Jewish people into the nations of the world, Hebrew had practically become a dead language. With the rise of Zionism and the return of the Jewish people to their ancient homeland, Hebrew became the common language that all immigrants were required to learn. It was the dream of Eliezer ben Yehuda that when the Jewish people returned to their ancient homeland, that they would speak their ancient tongue of Hebrew. Ben Yehuda helped to make this a reality. Therefore, he is seen as being the creator of the modern Hebrew language. Ben Yehuda was born in Lithuania on January the 7th, 1858. He learned Hebrew at a young age as a part of his religious upbringing. Though migrating from Russia with tuberculosis in 1881, he devoted his life to rejuvenating Hebrew for modern use, even producing a Hebrew dictionary. In spite of much ridicule, he and his wife took a vow that no words would ever again pass their lips except in Hebrew, a vow that proved to be one of the turning points in the history of Palestine. In the decade following the international approval of the Belfort Declaration, many Jews made Aliyah and returned to the land of Palestine. During these years, they came mostly from Russia and Eastern Europe. In the eight years since the Belfort Declaration, the Jewish population had doubled from 55,000 to 103,000. Zionism had finally caught the imagination of the Jewish people and in oppression increased in Europe. Thousands of Jews fled to Palestine in the sanctuary of a Jewish national homeland during the decade of the 1920s. However, all this was greeted with stiff Arab rejection of Jewish immigration to the land of Israel. The main source of agitation was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini. 
The British had sought to control the country through two leading families of Palestine with large land holdings, the Husseinis and the Nashashibis. Hajj Amin Husseini was appointed president of the Supreme Muslim Council in 1922, giving him immense political, economic, and religious clout. During World War II, he defected to the Nazis, moving to Rome and Berlin. In the 20s and 30s, he missed no opportunity to stir antagonism and wage war against the Jewish families settling in Palestine. Despite Arab opposition, a flood of 150,000 Jewish immigrants entered Palestine from 1931 to 1935. While the Jewish community was trying to persuade the British to allow increased Jewish immigration, the Arabs were threatening to cut off access to Middle Eastern oil supplies if immigration was increased. However, when European Jews needed the refuge of immigration the most, it was cut off from them. The ominous year was 1939. On May the 17th, 1939, the British government of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain issued a paper known as the MacDonald White Paper after Malcolm MacDonald, the colonial secretary, which cut the immigration of Jews to Palestine to almost nothing. The 1939 White Paper specified three guidelines for Palestine. Number one, Jewish immigration would be slowed, then halted. Number two, Jews would only be allowed to buy land in areas where they were already the majority population. Number three, Britain would support an independent Palestinian state controlled by the Arabs after the war. This appeasement by the British brought about the judgment of the God of Israel. Winston Churchill called it a gross breach of faith. It was the virtual surrender to the demands of Arab terrorists. Yet the Grand Mufti even rejected this paper, demanding the immediate setting up of an independent Arab state in Palestine and no further Jewish immigration. What happened then to the Balfour Agreement? It fell victim to Chamberlain's government's policies of appeasement. Just as Czechoslovakia was offered to appease the Fuhrer in Europe, so the Balfour guarantee was sacrificed to appease the Mufti in Palestine. This restrictive British policy appears to have received an immediate judgment from heaven. Four months after issuing this white paper, which was May 1939, Britain was reluctantly drawn into World War II, which was September the 1st, 1939. As the Second World War erupted, Jewish emigration to Palestine came to a virtual halt. Visas from Europe were cut off by Adolf Hitler and entrance into Palestine was shut off by the British. Adolf Hitler had a demonic desire to destroy and eliminate the Jewish people from existence. His desire could be seen in five progressive stages. Number one, the first stage began immediately when he took office in purpose to destroy all Jewish businesses in Germany. Number two, the second stage came in 1935 when the Nuremberg Laws were passed, depriving all Jews of citizenship. Number three, the third stage began with the mass arrest of Jews in September 1939 at the outbreak of war. Jews were put in concentration camps and required to wear the badge of shame, the yellow star of David, to distinguish them from non-Jews. For those still allowed to migrate, the ransom price was surrender of all possessions, by 1939, only 200,000 of the 500,000 Jews living in Germany six years earlier still remained. 
The fourth stage came in 1940 when all Jews were incarcerated in concentration camps. This roundup was later extended to all parts of German-occupied Europe. Nazis hauled Jews in from Austria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, Romania, France, Holland, Switzerland, Belgium, Northern Italy, Yugoslavia, Denmark, and Norway with only several outstanding exceptions. The fifth and final stage of this madness was called the Final Solution and was initiated by Nazi leadership in 1942. The purpose of the concentration camps changed from detention to extermination and murder became a full-time German occupation. The main death camps were located in Germany, Poland, Austria, and Czechoslovakia. The memorial at Yad Vashem has listed 22 of the largest camps, names known in infamy, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Dachau, Mathausen, and Treblinka. The largest was Auschwitz in Poland, where over three million were murdered. So important was this carnage to Nazi leaders that it was given an even higher priority than that of the war effort itself. Although the Nazi cause was clearly lost in early 1945, the gas chambers and furnaces were kept running full blast. As Finkelstein remarks, the actual annihilation of the Jewish population was one of the main ideological and military objectives of the German Nazified war machine, and this objective was to a large extent achieved. And looking at the total Jewish victims of the Holocaust, which totaled nearly 6 million, there were in Austria 65,000, Hungary 402,000, Belgium 24,000, Italy 7,500, Czechoslovakia 277,000, Luxembourg 700, France 83,000, Norway 760, Germany 125,000, Poland 4.5 million, Greece 65,000, Romania 40,000, Holland 106,000, Yugoslavia 60,000. When international teams of investigators confirmed the horrors of the Holocaust, most of the Western world agreed that immediate measures should be taken to open the door to Palestine. Even the British Labour Party agreed. With regard to the unspeakable horrors that have been perpetrated upon the Jews in Germany and other occupied countries in Europe, it said, it is morally wrong and politically indefensible to impose obstacles to the entry into Palestine now of Jews who desire to go there. It furthermore proposed that the American, Soviet, and British governments should see whether we cannot get that common support for a policy which will give us a happy, free, and prosperous state in Palestine. Even before the war ended, a significant shift occurred through the British elections of July 1945. Britain still had the League of Nations mandate to control Palestine. During the war, Prime Minister Churchill had been strongly supportive of Zionism and gave Weissman his word that a state of Israel would be set up in Palestine after the war with three to four million Jews. That was the view of both the Labour and Tory parties in their electioneering campaigns. But in 1945, Churchill's coalition was voted out of office in a landslide. Britain's severe economic setbacks during the war and its shrinking world empire led to the dissatisfaction that produced his ouster. The Labour Party of Clement Attlee took over with high expectations from everyone, including the Zionists. Despite candidate Attlee's pro-Zionist stance, however, his administration soon reversed itself on the Palestine issue. Ernest Bevan was made foreign secretary and thus became in charge of the Middle East and its problems. 
Though a sharp statesman and keenly perceptive of growing Soviet power, he did not share the pro-Zionist sympathies of his colleagues in the former administration. Bevan repudiated all the pledges that had been made officially and unofficially by labor speakers for the past 10 years, some of which may have helped the party win the election. Several changes made this reversal of policy the political prudent course for the new foreign secretary. The Arab world was gaining prestige and becoming a factor to be reckoned with. It had just added several independent states to its number and its oil powers claiming international respect. In juggling interests in the Middle East, Bevan tended to favor the Arabs and downplay the rights of Jews. To this end, Bevan came to fiercely oppose the creation of a Jewish state in the troubled area. Encouraged by Bevan, the Arabs boldly demanded that all Jewish immigration be stopped and a new Arab state be set up in Palestine. The irony is that none of those Arab nations except for Transjordan supported the Allies in World War II. They remained carefully neutral until the final months when Allied victory was assured. The Palestinian leader, ex-Mufti Haj Amin Husseini, in fact defected to Iraq before the war and later joined Hitler and Eichmann in Germany in their butchery of Jews. Yet the Arab states were shown amazing respect by the Allied powers in the post-war era. Seven states were given them in the United Nations General Assembly. When many Zionists began to realize that a political solution to establish a national homeland for the Jewish people could not be achieved, they saw the need for military action. The main Jewish resistance groups were the Haganah, the Ergun, and Lehi. Arab riots in the land of Palestine in 1920 and 1921 strengthened the view that it was impossible to depend upon the British authorities to defend and protect the Jewish people in the land of Palestine. After initially encouraging the immigration of Jews to Israel, the British now openly banned Jewish immigration. From these events, it became apparent that the British were not interested in providing security for the Jewish settlers in the land. Therefore, the Jewish settlers needed to create an independent defense force completely free of foreign authority. With the help of the worldwide Jewish agency, the Haganah was created. In June of 1920, the Haganah was founded by the Histendrut, the General Federation of Jewish Labor. At the time, it was considered illegal by the British mandatory authorities. The Haganah became the underground defense organization of the settlers from 1920 to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. As Arab hostilities increased, the members of the Haganah split over the question of how to react to Arab terrorism. Following Arab disturbances in the summer of 1929, a group of commanders and members of the Haganah, led by Avraham Tahomi, decided to split from the main group and set up their own organization to be more active in pursuing the Arab terrorists. This new organization was named Ergun Zava Laumi, or the National Military Organization, also known by the name of Etzel. It was founded in 1931 and became an underground organization that operated in Palestine in the 1930s and 1940s. Ergun rejected the restraint policy of the Haganah. They carried out armed reprisals against Arabs and preferred to use political powers to forward the goal of reclaiming the land. 
While the armed reprisals against the Arabs provided relief for the Jewish settlers, it was condemned by the Jewish agency and brought political embarrassment to them. While the Jewish agency tried to provide an image of the Jew being a good, moral person who was being terrorized by the Arabs in order to win support from the non-Jewish world, the Ergun gave its full support to the settlers. On December the 5th, 1936, Avraham Tahomi signed an accord with Ziav Jabotinsky, the leader of the revisionist movement, making Jabotinsky commander of Ergun. In April of 1937, during the Arab riots, the Ergun split. About half its members returned to the Haganah. The rest formed a new Ergun, which was ideologically linked with the revisionist movement and accepted the authority of its leader, Vladimir Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky was born October the 18th, 1880, in the city of Odessa, Russia. The pogrom against the Jews of Kishinev in 1903 spurred Jabotinsky to undertake Zionist activity. Jabotinsky was deeply impressed by Theodore Herzl. Jabotinsky was elected as a delegate to the Sixth Zionist Congress, the last in which Theodore Herzl participated. After World War I, Jabotinsky became disenchanted when Great Britain severed almost 80% of the British mandate originally designated for a Jewish homeland to create Transjordan in 1922. Transjordan today is just called Jordan. Disillusioned with Britain and angry at Zionist acquiescence to British reversals, Jabotinsky became unhappy with the direction of the Zionist movement. He was unconvinced that the Turks or the Arabs would accommodate the aims of Zionism, so he advocated bolder tactics. Jabotinsky set about establishing a separate Zionist federation based on revision of the relationship between the Zionist movement and Great Britain. This federation would actively challenge Britain policy and openly demand self-determination or Jewish statehood. The goals of the revisionist movement included restoration of a Jewish brigade to protect the Jewish community and mass immigration to Palestine of up to 40,000 Jews a year. With the outbreak of World War II, Ergun declared a truce, which led to a second split. Some forces decided to fight with the British against the Nazi Axis powers. This group declared a truce and joined the British army in the Jewish brigade. The second group, led by Avraham Stern, was known as the Stern Gang or Lehi. They operated as an underground organization from 1940 to 1948. In December of 1943, Menachem Begin became leader of the Ergun. Begin was a Polish Jew who had escaped a Siberian labor camp in 1943 and made his way to Palestine to join the Ergun. In February 1944, Ergun declared war against the British administration. It attacked and blew up government offices, military installations, and police stations. The Jewish agency and their group, the Haganah, responded against the Ergun in a campaign nicknamed the Sison. The Haganah kidnapped several of the Ergun's members and handed them over to the British. After World War II, the Haganah realized that the British were not relenting their ban on immigration, nor were they helpful in combating Arab terrorism. In late 1945, the three groups, the Ergun, the Haganah, and Lehi, reached an understanding to coordinate the struggle to fight the British. The unity of the groups was short-lived. 
In May 1946, the Ergun blew up the wing of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, which housed the British Palestine Command. The organization's cooperation broke up following Ergun's bombing because Haganah claimed that the attack had not been coordinated with them. After the end of World War II, the Haganah was the largest and most important Jewish military force operating against the British. On May 26, 1948, the Provisional Government of Israel decided to transform the Haganah into the regular army of the state to be called the Israeli Defense Forces, or the IDF. When the IDF was established on May 31, 1948, Ergun and Lehi announced that its members would join also. Haganah and Ergun became the Labor and Likud political parties in Israel. The Haganah and Ergun have had their political differences since they were created to fight against the British in order that the Jewish people could have a national homeland. There was an event that took place before they merged themselves into the IDF that highlights the division and tension between the two groups. This division continues to the present day through the modern-day political parties in Israel named Labor and Likud, whose political roots go back to the Haganah and the Ergun. The Ergun had a boat, the Altalina, which had supplies and men coming into Jaffa port. The boat was laden with munitions needed by the Jewish defenders. The Haganah wanted to take all supplies. Negotiation between the Ergun and the Haganah ensued. No agreement was made. The Haganah opened fire on the Altalina, sinking the boat, killing and wounding Jewish lives and destroying supplies. The commander of the Haganah was Yitzhak Rabin. He later became a prime minister of Israel. And he was the one who ended up signing the 1993 Oslo Accords. When the nation of Israel was established, the Jewish agency and its followers took up the leadership of Israel. Today, their political party is known as Labor. The opposition party, led by the soldiers in the Ergun, became the opposition party to the Haganah and is known today as the Likud. Still today, these two groups are politically fighting it out between themselves, just as they did in the time of the birth of the state of Israel. When the Ergun blew up the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, where the British government kept their office on July the 22nd, 1946, 28 British were killed. By the beginning of 1947, the British had decided they wanted nothing more than to wash their hands of the original British mandate. Thus, it was becoming more and more evident that British anti-Zionist policy was not working and that a new approach was needed. The Attlee Bevan government came to see how impossible it was to carry out the British mandate with conflicting policies toward the Jews and the Arabs. Acknowledging a deadlock on the issue, the British cabinet on April the 2nd, 1947, announced it was referring the Palestine problem to the United Nations General Assembly. This body set up an 11-nation investigative board to devise a plan of action. After several months of review, they recommended endorsing the principle of independence for both the Jews and the Arabs. However, they were divided regarding who should control what area. The majority voted for partitioning Palestine, advocating three divisions, 
an Arab state, a Jewish state, and an international zone in the Jerusalem area. So even though we've been giving you a lot of detail here regarding the history of the modern nation of Israel, going back to the political developments beginning with Theodore Herzl and then the events associated with World War I, World War II, and how the Arab opposition uh, against the British policy of seeking to promote a Jewish state and to allow Jews to immigrate with Israel set up an environment which caused there to be the number of Jews that were able to emigrate from Europe to Palestine or the land of Israel. That contributed to allowing Hitler to kill as many Jews as he did in Europe in what is known as the Holocaust. And then I wanted to share with you these details so that you can see that the British were in the middle of a conflict between the Jews who wanted to return to the land and the Arabs who resisted it, and the British did not have a consistent policy. And so that's the background to understand why and how the British eventually decided that they wanted to turn over the whole problem to the United Nations. And so ultimately from the committee that was formed in the United Nations on November the 29th, 1947, the United Nations General Assembly voted on the plan and their solution for the Middle East problem. And so that's when they voted to make a Arab state, a Jewish state, and then make Jerusalem an international city. So following the Arabs then not recognizing and accepting the Jewish state when it declared its independence on May the 14th, 1948, the Arabs launched a war against the Jews, against the independence that was declared to be the state of Israel. And then there were succeeding wars in 1956. And then you have the Six-Day War of 1967. And then the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And so all of these wars was because the Arabs did not want to accept the Jewish state and the presence of Jews in the region because they rejected the solution that was being brought to them and to the region that came about from the United Nations General Assembly voted to create a Arab state, a Jewish state, and to make Jerusalem an international city. So following the 1967 Six-Day War, the solution following the war, which came in the form of UN Resolutions 242 that was passed in 1967 and 338 that was passed in 1973, 
following the Yom Kippur War, that the nations advocated that there would be a two-state solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And this two-state solution has its roots back to this 1947 United Nations General Assembly vote and their recommendation for the solution to the problem of the conflict between the Jews and the Arabs. And in the a recommendation by the United Nations General Assembly, they advocated making Jerusalem an international city. And so the United States has not recognized Jerusalem being the capital of Israel following the 1967 Six-Day War because in 1980, Israel annexed Jerusalem and Israel has regarded it as the united capital of Israel. But the United States and the other nations of the world have not recognized this. And so they are still advocating that in the solution between the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that there not only be two states, which is what the United Nations General Assembly called for on November the 29th, 1947, but they also desire to see Jerusalem to be divided and to see that East Jerusalem be a capital of a Palestinian state while West Jerusalem be the capital of a Jewish state. And so by understanding the history of Israel from Theodore Herzl to World War I, World War II, and then into this generation with the events of Israel's War of Independence in 48, and then the war where the Arabs attacked Israel in 56, 67, 73. That will give you an understanding of why the nations are recommending the solution to the conflict that they are now, why they're advocating a two-state solution, why they want to see Jerusalem being an international city, because it goes back to the original plan and solution that the United Nations General Assembly came up with on November the 29th, 1947, wherein the United Nations was given over to come up to a solution for the problem because before that time it was under the rule of the British and the British mandate and the British had committed to establish a Jewish state through the Belfort Declaration but the Arabs resisted the effort and then they did not recognize the declaration of Israel as a Jewish state on May the 14th, 1948. Now, the reason why the independence of the state of Israel was declared on May the 14th, 1948 is because this vote here of the United Nations General Assembly that 
This vote that took place on November 29, 1947, where they recommended an Arab state, a Jewish state, and to make Jerusalem an international city, that vote was to go into effect on May the 14th, 1948. And so the Jewish leadership accepted the plan put forth by the United Nations General Assembly and thus declared the state of Israel on the day that ended the British mandate. But the Arab world did not recognize this solution put forth by the United Nations General Assembly on November 29, 1947. But now, in our modern day, over 60 years from that original vote, now the Palestinians are saying they want to see a two-state solution. They want to see Jerusalem being an international city. So when they thought that they did not have to share the land with the Jews, that they had military superiority and could defeat them in war, they would not accept the United Nations General Assembly ruling. But now since Israel's become a nation and they've built up a powerful army and the Arabs have not been able to defeat them through war, that is when they decided, well, okay, maybe we'll say now that we are in favor of this two-state solution in making Jerusalem an international city. So even though so far I've been sharing with you a lot of details regarding the history of the modern state of Israel, uh, beginning with the Jewish mindset and the movement that was started by Theodore Herzl to create a state of Israel, it's very necessary to understand this history in order to understand the mindset of Israel today and to understand the politics that are going on in our world. So with that in mind, let's continue to see what happened here historically when the British then gave the question of what to do with the Middle East over to the United Nations ending the British mandate. The General Assembly of the United Nations voted on November the 29th, 1947 to partition the Palestine or Israel area of the Middle East. The vote was 33 to 13, mainly the Western Bloc against the Muslims in Asian blocs. Eleven nations abstained, including Britain. It was to be implemented at the termination of the British Mandate on May the 14th, 1948. This partition plan vote became UN Resolution 181. In Part 3, Section A of UN Resolution 181, the city of Jerusalem was established as a special international regime that would be administered by the United Nations. Thus, the plan of the United Nations for Jerusalem was to make it an international city. The Arabs unequivocally rejected UN Resolution 181, perceiving it as another step in Zionist expansionism. To maintain good relations with the Arab League, Britain also rejected it. Joining them, 
the United States State Department under Secretary of State George Marshall cautioned against the plan. In May 1947, the Soviet delegation surprised everyone by endorsing partitioning. In October, the Arab League began a troop buildup in Palestine. President Truman of the United States chose to disagree with the Secretary of State George Marshall on the issue. Truman accused the State Department of having an Arabic mentality. Like most of the British diplomats, he quipped, some of our diplomats also thought that the Arabs, on account of their numbers and because of the fact that they controlled such immense oil resources, should be appeased. I am sorry to say that there were some among them who were inclined to be anti-Semitic. He then instructed the State Department to support the United Nations plan of partitioning Palestine. Many historians or commentators believe that this courageous action by Truman received the smile of heaven. That fall, Truman ran for re-election against the highly favored Republican, Governor of New York, Tom Dewey, and won. Truman later referred to himself as Cyrus, the biblical Gentile who in Persian times had assisted the post-exiled Jewish remnant in returning from dispersion. The Arabs responded to the partition resolution by carrying out their oft-repeated threats. Jewish homes and synagogues in the major cities were immediately attacked while the British stood by. Calls went out for all available forces from the Arabic states to mobilize for war. Arabs saw the British withdrawal as an opportunity to drive out the Jews and settle the immigration question once and for all. The Mufti came from Cairo to Lebanon to take charge of the Palestinian operation. In the late afternoon of May the 14th, 1948, the British kept their word and hauled down the Union Jack. Israel proceeded to raise its newly designed flag featuring the Star of David the same day. David Ben-Gurion became Israel's first prime minister. Haim Weizmann later became the first president of the new republic. Within minutes, President Truman issued a statement extending de facto recognition to Israel as a sovereign state. However, before the day ended, Egyptian planes were already bombing Tel Aviv. Most of the Arab states sent men and material to the attack, including Syria, Transjordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Yemen, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. Additional forces came from North African states. The Arabs' initial attack was full-scale on all sides. Confident that their sheer numbers and superior armament would quickly overwhelm the ill-equipped Jews, their plan was to take Palestine's key cities within a few weeks and then quickly drive the Jews into the sea. From a statistical standpoint, an easy triumph was practically a given. The Arabs' overwhelming power came from seven nations with a combined population of over 140 million people. The Jewish remnant they opposed totaled only 650,000 in all Palestine, with no promise of backing from other nations. The Arab Legion of Transjordan was financed and officiated by the British. However, with divine help from the God of Israel, the Jewish people won the war and the nation of Israel was born. In May 1949, the new nation of Israel was accepted into the United Nations, recognized as an independent, sovereign nation. The 1949 Armistice Agreements are a set of agreements signed between Israel and its neighbors, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. On February the 24th, 1949, Egypt was given the Gaza Strip. 
On April the 3rd, 1949, Jordan maintained the West Bank, also known as the Green Line and East Jerusalem. In 1950, Jordan formally annexed the West Bank. The move was recognized only by Britain and Pakistan. For the next 17 years, the West Bank was governed as part of Jordan. The Palestinians were granted full citizenship. Relations between the Jordanians and West Bank Palestinians, however, remained strained. Egypt's general, Gamal Nasser, was elected president of Egypt in 1956. From 1948, Egypt had closed the Suez Canal to Israeli ships. Then in 1955, she began a blockade also of the Gulf of Aqaba, cutting off Israel's access to the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. Responding to this challenge, Israel again mobilized her citizen army in October 1956, striking at Egypt through the rugged Sinai wasteland. That desert campaign became known as Operation Kadesh. Once again, with divine help from the God of Israel, the Jewish people defeated the plans of Nasser in Egypt, and Israel won the 1956 war. In the spring of 1967, following a vast military buildup of Russian equipment, Nasser again closed the Gulf of Aqaba to Israeli shipping and demanded that UN observers withdraw from the demilitarized zone. By May the 17th, seven Arabic nations had mobilized armor on three fronts, broadcasting their intentions to cut the Jews' throats. King Hussein of Jordan decided to join the fray, collaborating with Iraqi troops. He hoped to seize the Islamic shrines in Jerusalem for his Hashemite kingdom. When Nasser blockaded the Straits of Tehran and closed off the Israeli port of Elat, he prevented Israel's only access from the Gulf of Aqaba to the Red Sea and from there to the Gulf of Aden in the Arabian Sea. And it meant Israel's access to oil from the Persian Gulf was cut off. The blockade, considered an act of war by Israel, was provocation of the First Order. Israel had already notified the UN Security Council that it would soon have to act in its own self-defense. But the UN failed to enforce the conditions of the truce that had existed since 1956. Israeli generals Yitzhak Rabin and Moshe Dayan foresaw that surprise was their only hope. The preemptive strike was decisive. In 170 minutes, Israel's pilots had smashed Egypt's best-equipped air bases and had turned 300 of Nasser's combat planes into flaming wrecks. The Egyptian Air Force, the largest in the Middle East, was in ruins. The same scenario was replayed in Syria, Jordan, and Iraq. By nightfall of June the 6th, Israel had destroyed 416 planes and 393 on the ground. In two days, the Egyptian army in the Sinai was virtually wiped out, leaving Israel to occupy the Gaza Strip. To the north, after a desperate and costly tank battle, the Syrians were routed and the strategic Golan Heights was taken. Thus ended the long nightmare of Syrian bombardment of Galilean villages. Israel was now more secure on her northern border. In the battle with Jordan, Israel gained control of the West Bank and the old city of Jerusalem fell into Israeli hands. By gaining control of the West Bank, the cities of Bethlehem, Hebron, Jericho, and Shechem, as well as Jerusalem, came into Israel's hands. For the first time in 1900 years, the Jews had control of the old city of Jerusalem. These territories proved to be 
an ideal bone of contention for the Arabs, leading to further conflicts that would dwarf even the monumental battles of Israel's first 20 years of nationhood. From the 1967 war, then we have the 1973 Yom Kippur War. On October the 6th, 1973, on Yom Kippur, the Arabs attacked Israel once again. In the third and fourth days of the war, Israel began to win the war. First, Israel was able to defeat Syria in the north. By October the 18th, Israeli troops headed toward Damascus. In the battle with Egypt in the Suez, Israel gained the upper edge over Egypt. By October the 23rd, the Israeli army was at the Gulf of Suez. As a result, Egypt and Russia demanded that the UN Security Council require Israel to pull back to its pre-1967 borders. The 1973 Yom Kippur War highlighted how imported Arab oil had become an important political and economic issue in understanding the present Israel-Arab conflict. The world economy depends on imported Arab oil, and the Arab oil-producing countries decided to use oil as an economic and political weapon to influence world opinion against Israel. On October the 17th, 1973, Arab petroleum ministers met during the Yom Kippur War and decided to cut oil production and exports. It was under the facade of the war crisis that the Arabs seized the opportunity to launch a drastic escalation of oil prices. Libya announced on October the 18th that the cost of its oil would go up 28%, irrespective of the war in Israel's misdeeds. Iraq thereupon declared a 70% price rise. Kuwait matched this figure. Members of the European Common Market took immediate measures to placate Arab oil barons, making new demands on Israel to give up the occupied territories. Thus, an oil-thirsty world forced Israel into a diplomatic ghetto. Though the Arabs suffered a devastating loss, in the Yom Kippur War, they discovered a powerful new weapon and found themselves in the driver's seat of the world economy. By a simple turn of oil valves, they could further the goals of Palestine. As a result of Israel winning her war of independence and her succeeding wars against her Arab neighbors, the Arabs living in Israel did not have a country of their own. They called themselves Palestinians. Following the 1973 Yom Kippur War, the Palestinians became an increasingly important political issue in the Israel-Arab conflict. Since the creation of the Arab states, the Palestinian people have been mistreated by Arab states and have had bad relations with many of them. During this time, Arab leaders have fought among themselves for the title of being the leader of the Arab world. By not having a state of their own, the Palestinians have been used by the Arab world for their own political purpose and as a political weapon against Israel. While the Arab states all recognize the Palestinians as their cousins, only Jordan was willing to take their refugees. The Palestinian Liberation Organization, or the PLO, was actually the brainchild of Gamal Nasser of Egypt. The PLO was first organized in Cairo in 1964. Its founding document is the Palestine National Covenant. This declaration rejects the Balfour Declaration of 1917, the UN Partition Agreement of 1948, 
the Jews' biblical claims to the land, and it denies the right of the Jewish people to have a nation. The covenant has been revised several times over the years, but it still contains the vehement anti-Jewish sentiments of the original document. It insists that all the territory of the nation of Israel properly belongs to the Palestinian Arabs, and only those Jews living in Palestine prior to the Zionist invasion can be regarded as legitimate Palestinians and thus allowed to stay in the land. Nasser sought to promote an underground forum for the Palestinian people. This was first called the Palestinian Liberation Army, or the PLO. Chosen as leader was Ahmad Shakari, a puppet of Nasser, who set up headquarters in Cairo. The express purpose of this organization was to allow the Palestinian people to play a role in the liberation of their country in their self-determination. The Arab leaders who set it up, however, had other designs for the organization. They intended to make it an instrument of guerrilla warfare against Israel under their control. They had no intention of creating an independent Palestinian movement. Six years before Nasser created the PLO, Yasser Arafat started his own group in Syria to liberate Palestine. Then living in Kuwait, Arafat and a handful of revolutionaries created a military organization. They called it the Palestinian National Liberation Movement. In Arabic, the initials spelled out Hataf. They turned the letters around to spell Fatah, which is a reverse acronym of the name of the movement in Arabic. The word Fatah means conquest by means of jihad or Islamic holy war. So I wanted to share with you this historical information because it is the perspective among the peoples of the world in the, the image of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we get from our media that somehow there was a Palestinian people who had a state of their own prior to June of 1967 and that somehow Israel were the aggressors and now they're trying to take over their state. But the reality is that it was the Arab world who rejected the UN partition plan of 1947, did not accept the United Nations two-state solution, went to war with Israel in 1948, lost, and so Nasser of Egypt in 1956 tried to start another war against Israel to defeat them, and then there was a coalition of Arab states in 1967 who simultaneously waged war against Israel, and prior to the June 1967 war, the West Bank was under the control of Jordan. And following the 1967 war, the people who called themselves the Palestinians or the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was seen as being 
the spokesman for the Palestinian people, of which Yasser Arafat became its leader, then they presented the thought or the image that they were just trying to reclaim land that was originally theirs. But the historical facts are is that the Palestinian Liberation Organization was created by Nasser in Egypt in 1964, three years before the June 1967 war. And its goal and intent was to liberate Palestine. In other words, to not acknowledge the Jewish state and ultimately try to defeat it and drive it into the sea. And so even though the Palestinian Liberation Organization was created in 1964, that following the June 1967 war, they took upon the opportunity to try to make claim that the West Bank is a part of Palestinian territory and Israel or the Jewish people were occupying their land. So the Palestinian Liberation Organization tried to claim the West Bank as their land even though the organization was started in 1964 before the June 1967 war. So part of the purpose that I would like to achieve by sharing with you an understanding of the modern history of Israel are these facts because without knowing the history, the image that is portrayed of the conflict, especially through Arab propaganda, is completely different and framed completely differently than the historical facts suggest. Now we're going to give you some history regarding the PLO, Fatah, Yasser Arafat, and how he became, after starting a movement in Syria that became known as Fatah, to engage in guerrilla military tactics in the name of Islamic holy war against Israel, how he ultimately became the head and the leader of the PLO. From his earliest years, Arafat was engrossed in liberation tactics, devising terrorist activities against the Israelis whom he saw as invaders. As he and his cronies began the Fatah, they saw themselves as the generation of revenge, seeking vengeance for the loss of Palestine. Originally, Fatah opposed the founding of the PLO. By 1969, Fatah had become the largest guerrilla group affiliated with the PLO. At that year's meeting of the PLO's executive body, the Palestinian National Council, Yasser Arafat won the complete control of the PLO. When Arafat took over the PLO, the organization reverted to cell groups developed by its Fatah members in Syria. First, it was basically a guerrilla organization that worked underground apart from the national armies or agencies. Its single purpose was to evict the Israelis from the land and to set up an independent Palestinian state, 
not one in tandem with Jordan or any other Arab state. Second, it intended to achieve its goals by armed conflict, using infiltration and terror to drive out the occupiers of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. In December 1987, the Palestinian patients ran out and long pent-up feelings were suddenly unleashed with stones and homemade bombs. This uprising was known as the Intifada. It quickly spread through the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Most irritating to the Palestinians was the Israeli settlement of Jewish communities in the West Bank. Through the Intifada, the Palestinians have looked to the world media to dramatize their fight against Israel. By being successful at this, it has forced Israel to rethink its policies regarding the settlements in biblical Judea and Samaria, or the world refers to it as the West Bank. Following the 1967 war, two different schools of thought developed among the Arabs concerning their dilemma of what to do with Israel. With the increased territory Israel gained as a result of the war, it was believed impossible to defeat Israel by conventional means. The first school of thought held that since it was no longer possible to defeat Israel by conventional means, then there was no choice but to make formal peace with the Jewish nation. This view was held by Anwar Sadat of Egypt, who accepted Menachem Begin's invitation to help negotiate a settlement with Israel. The peace treaty called the Camp David Accords was drafted in late 1978, and it was signed in early 1979. The second school of thought held that since it was no longer possible to defeat Israel within her existing boundaries, then the course of action should be to first reduce Israel to the pre-1967 borders and then destroy her. This view was officially adopted by the PLO at their 1974 conference in Cairo. It was formalized in a document known as the Phase Plan. Dr. Aaron Lerner, a Middle East analyst, summarizes the goals of the PLO's phase plan as follows. First, to establish a combatant national authority over every part of Palestinian territory that is liberated. This is Article 2. Second, to use that territory to continue the fight against Israel. That's Article 4. And finally, to start a pan-Arab war to complete the liberation of all the Palestinian territory. That's Article 8. Now, looking at the PLO phase plan destruction of Israel. It was adopted at the 12th session of the Palestinian National Council in Cairo, June the 9th, 1974. And the text of the phase plan resolution is as follows. The Palestinian National Council, on the basis of the Palestinian National Charter and the political program drawn up at the 11th session, held from January the 6th to the 12th, 1973, and from its belief that it is impossible for a permanent and just peace to be established in the area unless our Palestinian people recover all their national rights, and first and foremost, their rights to return and to self-determination on the whole of the soil of their homeland. And in the light of a study of the new political circumstances that have come into existence in the period between the Council's last and present session, it resolves the following. Number one. To reaffirm the Palestinian Liberation Organization's previous attitude to UN Resolution 242, which was passed by the UN Security Council in 1967, which obliterates the national right of our people and deals with the cause 
of our people as a problem of refugees. The council therefore refuses to have anything to do with this resolution at any level, Arab or international, including the Geneva Conference. Number two, the Liberation Organization will employ all means and first and foremost armed struggle to liberate Palestinian territory and to establish the independent combatant national authority for the people over every part of Palestinian territory that is liberated. This will require further changes being affected in the balance of power in favor of our people and their struggle. Number three, any step taken toward liberation is a step toward the realization of the liberation organization's strategy of establishing the democratic Palestinian state specified in the resolutions of previous Palestinian national councils. The liberation organization will strive to strengthen its solidarity with the socialist countries and with forces of liberation and progress throughout the world with the aim of frustrating all the schemes of Zionism, reaction, and imperialism. The executive committee of the Palestine Liberation Organization will make every effort to implement this program and should a situation arise affecting the destiny and the future of the Palestinian people, the National Assembly will be convened in extraordinary session. The PLO has decided that it would be acceptable to get rid of Israel in stages and the means by which doing this would be trading land for peace if it couldn't be done all at once, meaning by war. Arafat has publicly told his followers on numerous occasions that the Declaration of Principles signed with Israel in September 1993, known as Oslo I, is actually a part of the PLO's phase plan destruction of Israel. In November 1994, in a speech marking the celebration of Palestine National Day, Arafat said, what has been a dream has become a reality. In 1974, the Palestinian National Council decided on establishing a Palestinian authority on the first piece of land from which the enemy has withdrawn or that we have liberated. The PLO has threatened that if Israel doesn't exchange land for peace, that they will continue the struggle to liberate Palestine by any other means. Hamas and Islamic Jihad are part of the war by other means, by the PLO against Israel. Because of the success of the Intifada or the Arab uprising and protest against Israel having the West Bank areas as well as other lands that it obtained in self-defense in the June 1967 war, world public opinion is demanding that Israel compromise with the PLO and trade land for peace. Prior to the disengagement from the Gaza Strip in August of 2005, the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rabbi Shir Yeshuv Cohen, came to Jerusalem and pleaded with Israel's Prime Minister Ariel Sharon to reconsider his plan to retreat from Gush Katif, which is an area of the Jewish communities in the Gaza, which involves Israel's obliteration of the 21 Jewish communities there, including 325 thriving Israeli farms and 86 synagogues and Jewish study centers. Sharon's answer to Rabbi Cohen was this, this is what the U.S. State Department is demanding that I do, and as a result, I must do it. Now, in 
Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it describes the day of the Lord as it is written. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day, that is the day of the Lord, is the day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And so in speaking about the day of the Lord and the things associated with it, it speaks of the following. Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 4. For Gaza shall be forsaken. And so in August of 2005, this is what happened. That Israel, through the leadership of the prime minister at the time, Ariel Sharon, decided to uproot Jewish communities in the Gaza, in effect, forsaking the Gaza. So I believe this is a part of the fulfillment of this verse, but there's more to the verse than this. As the verse goes on to say, For Gaza shall be forsaken, Ashkelon a desolation, they shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Now, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron are communities or cities along the Mediterranean coast, along with the Gaza area. So, Zephaniah 2.4 is prophesying about destruction along the coastland of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. So the world is advocating that in order to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that the way to do it is to trade land for peace. When the British made a commitment to Heim Weissman to work for a Jewish homeland, which came under what is known as the British Mandate, and through that came the Belfort Declaration in 1917. As we have seen from the history that's been presented here, the Arabs protested, and Britain then decided to give around 80% of the land that was to be designated for a Jewish homeland. It was given to what was called then Transjordan, which means across the Jordan, or it was the land across the Jordan River, but now the trans has been dropped from the name, so it's just now called Jordan. So, in effect, land was given for peace. And so the Arabs then tried to defeat Israel and the Jewish people militarily. They tried to prevent Jewish immigration in um, the early part of the 1900s from the time that Theodore Herzl worked and encouraged Jewish immigration from that time through the 1920s and 1930s. And then um, we have the establishment of the State of Israel when they accepted the UN General Assembly partition plan vote. The Arabs did not accept it. And so they tried to defeat Israel militarily. They tried in 1948. They tried in 1956. They tried in 1967. They tried in 1973. 
So they were unsuccessful in all of these wars, but they did not give up. Then we have that Nasser in 1964 in Egypt established the PLO, whose goal was to liberate Palestine, not recognize the state of Israel. Meanwhile, there was another guerrilla organization started by Yasser Arafat in Syria that became known as Fatah, which was a movement to try to liberate the land of Israel in non-recognition of a Jewish state through guerrilla tactics. And so ultimately, Yasser Arafat gained head not only of Fatah coordinating its activities, but also the PLO. He became a head of the PLO in 1969. And then from the 1974 phase plan destruction of Israel, that the strategy then, because the Arab world was unsuccessful in defeating Israel militarily, that they would work on what's known as the phase plan destruction of Israel while there would be other Palestinian groups who would continue what they call the armed struggle or the guerrilla warfare tactics that these two methods would be going on simultaneously. But the one seeking the phase plan destruction, their goal was to first get a Palestinian state in the West Bank, in the Gaza with East Jerusalem as its capital, and then to strengthen that state militarily, and then when they felt that they were strong enough to wage war on the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and to drive them into the sea. And so did trying to appease the Arabs to achieve peace between Israel and the Arabs, did that work under British policy? No. Is it working now? No. Did it work by giving Transjordan um, to be an Arab state so that there can be a resolution of the Arab-Jewish dispute over the land? No. So what makes the nations of the world think that trading land for peace is truly going to bring out a just and comprehensive peace in the area. Well, in the mindset of the Jewish people, they just want to live their lives. They want to lead normal Jewish lives, and they're not interested in being in conflict with their Arab neighbors. So they're willing to demonstrate that they're interested in having peace, and they're even willing to discuss offering land. If the Arabs will generally follow the policy of desiring to coexist with Israel or with the Jewish people. But when you hear their speeches, when you hear their rhetoric, Mahmoud Abbas is still referring to what happened in 1948 with the creation of the state of Israel as a catastrophe. So the Arab world still does not and will not accept the existence of the Jewish people in the land and they 
continue to not accept the existence of the state of Israel. But what's driving this mindset among the Arabs? Ultimately, to them, it is a religious issue. Because in the Islamic belief, once there are lands under Islamic control, they must always be Islamic lands under the umbrella of the Islamic religion. And so for them, it isn't logical of, I just want to get along. And, and to them, it's not that whether they think they can't get along with the Jews. To them, it's an issue of they want to affirm that their religion, that Islam, and their God, Allah, is superior to the religion of the Jews and the God of the Jews, the God of Israel or Yahweh. So ultimately, we need to realize that this conflict is not going to be resolved diplomatically, politically, because it's a religious fight. It's a religious struggle. And actually, the fight and the issue goes back to the book of Genesis. It's actually a struggle over to whom does the birthright and the blessing of the birthright belong. And we see in the book of Genesis that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. And so now this is really, and it needs to be seen for what it truly is. It's a spiritual war. It's a spiritual battle. And it is the combined forces of Ishmael and Esau trying to affirm that they have the rights to the land. In essence, they are claiming the birthright and the blessing of the birthright. But the God of Israel, he made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we showed you at the beginning of this teaching in truth, it was Yeshua the Messiah before he came in human form that he's the one that made covenant with Abraham and affirmed it with Isaac and with Jacob. And ultimately, it's when Yeshua intervenes in the conflict, which the Bible says that he will. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, it says the day of the Lord and ultimately, the nations will insist on the dividing of the land and the dividing of the city of Jerusalem because it says Jerusalem will be divided. And then when you look at that verse, even though there's been a calling for the dividing of Jerusalem with the November 29th, 1947 General Assembly vote, in Zechariah 14, it talks about the dividing of Jerusalem that is associated with the tribulation period, that's associated with the day of the Lord. And then that will bring about the judgment of the nations. And then we're told in Joel chapter 3, verse 16, that the Lord will roar out of Zion. So because this is a religious dispute, it will be the God of Israel. It will be Yeshua the Messiah who will ultimately resolve this issue and when the nation of Israel gets their backs to 
the wall in the form that they cry out to the God of Israel. When they cry out to the Messiah, that is when the Messiah is going to come to their aid because this is a covenant issue. And in understanding covenant, when an entity is in covenant with someone else, that is when Yeshua is in covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, when they cry out to the one who they're in covenant with and calls upon him to come to their aid, according to terms of covenant, he's obligated to do so. And so when the nation of Israel cries out for the Messiah, the Messiah will fight for the Jewish people and he will settle this issue regarding to whom does the land belong. So trading land for peace will not bring peace. It will accentuate the conflict and it will only be solved by the Messiah when he establishes and he affirms to the entire world that when he made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will back that covenant and make sure that it is fully implemented and fully comes to pass. So, will ultimately the efforts of the nations, the policy of the nations to trade land for peace bring peace? No, it will bring about the wars of the end of days, the wars of the tribulation period that will lead to the Jewish people crying out for the Messiah. The Messiah will come to their aid in their defense. And then once Yeshua sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14, verse four, then the Lord will be one, his name one. He'll be king over all the earth, Zechariah chapter 14, verse nine. Then he will set up his messianic kingdom, Israel, will be at the head of the nations. The nations will no more be ruling over them. And then we're going to have that through the government of the Messiah that his Torah will be taught to all nations, Isaiah in chapter two and verse three. So do the Palestinians really want peace? Well, if you look at the official logo of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. It shows all of what we call Israel today as being a part of what they refer to as Palestine. And so this conflict, continued conflict, and the desire and the effort to trade land for peace, this is the context of what is called Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses six and seven, where it says, Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. So this conflict regarding to whom does the land belong this is what the Bible calls the controversy of Zion. In Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8, it is written, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. 
And so ultimately when the nations try to divide the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem through recognizing a Palestinian state based upon 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital, this brings about the judgment of the nations in this conflict over the land where there's wars associated with the Hevle Hamashiach, the birth pains of the Messiah, the tribulation period, or Jacob's trouble. This is what the tribulation period is all about. It's an end time battle between the house of Esau and the house of Jacob over the birthright, the blessing, and who owns the land. So now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. For Yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety or peace and security, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travails upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Now, Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 says, I will restore health unto you and I will heal you of your wound. The wound is the exile for breaking the covenant at Mount Sinai. And so the Restoring of health is the redemption. It's the end of the exile of the wound, which was breaking the covenant at Mount Sinai. And so when the God of Israel will be ending the exile and bringing his people back to the land, Israel will be isolated and Zion will be regarded as an outcast because it says, that the God of Israel is going to restore health to his people because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion, which no man seeks after. And then in Psalm 102, verse 16, when the Lord builds up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. What is the building up of Zion? Well, Zion and Jerusalem are synonymous terms in the Bible. So the building up of Zion is the building up of Jerusalem. And in Psalm 147, verse 2, it says, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. So the building up of Zion is the same as the building up of Jerusalem, which is gathering together the outcasts of Israel. It is the end of the exile. It is the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 15 through 28. Northern kingdom and southern kingdom being united, ending their exile and returning back to the land of Israel. So when this happens, then the Lord will appear in his glory. And so it's from Jacob's trouble. It's from the conflict over to whom does the land belong. It is when the nations divide the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem through recognizing a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital is when judgment comes upon the nations and that is going to initiate and trigger events that the God of Israel will end the exile of the 12 tribes of Israel. He will unite northern kingdom and southern kingdom and it's the role and the task and the function of the Messiah to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. So as it says in Psalm 102 verse 16 that the Lord, and this is a reference to Yeshua the Messiah, that he will appear in his glory. Now in Exodus in chapter 40 verse 34 it says, a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
that the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night is known as the glory of the Lord. In the way that the Lord will appear in his glory is he's going to be gathering and uniting the 12 tribes of Israel, the way in which he brought his people out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. He led them by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so it says in Isaiah in chapter four and verse five, the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion upon her assemblies, a cloud in a smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense or a hoopah. So the way in which we will see the ultimate end of the exile of the 12 tribes of Israel, the uniting of Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom, it will be by the Messiah and he will bring his people back in the form of the cloud by day in the pillar of fire by night. That is the building up of Zion or Jerusalem. That is the gathering and uniting the 12 tribes of Israel. So once he does that, he shall appear in his glory. He will not only fulfill the end of the exile by leading his people back the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, but following the completion of this task which takes place during the last three years of the great tribulation, Yeshua then will set his feet down on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4. Now the gathering uniting of the 12 tribes of Israel is likened to a marriage. We're told in Jeremiah in chapter 33 and verse 11, the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And so this is wedding talk. And what's associated with wedding talk at the end of Jeremiah 33 verse 11 is, for I'm going to cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first. The ending of the captivity, the ending of the exile is associated with marriage. The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of of the bride. And so we can see this in Jeremiah in chapter 31 and verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him in keeping as a shepherd does his flock. So it's talking about the one that scattered Israel will gather him. When he gathers him, he does so as a shepherd. And Yeshua said, in John chapter 10, verse 11 and verse 14, I am the good shepherd. So then it says in Jeremiah 31, verse 11, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. And so this is associated with marriage and the joy of a marriage because it goes on to say in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 13, then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. I will turn their mourning, that is the captivity or the exile, into joy, and I will comfort them. The comfort is the end of the exile. And so the Bible tells us that this is going to happen in a period of time known as the cloudy and dark day, which is a term for the day of the Lord, the end of days, the tribulation period. Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 12 says, As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will deliver them out of all the places where they've been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And so the cloudy and dark day is also a reference to the great tribulation period. And so 
the outcome of this conflict between the Jews and the Arabs regarding to whom does the land belong, it's prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 1, Son of man, prophesy against the mountains of Israel and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said against you, Aha, even the ancient high places are ours in possession. So the prophecy is to the mountains of Israel, which is the West Bank or biblically Judea Samaria. And this includes Jerusalem because Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains that the enemy would say this belongs to us. And this is what's happening. The Arab world with support of the Western world, the United States and Europe, is trying to affirm that in order to bring peace to the Middle East, you need to trade land for peace and that the West Bank in East Jerusalem belongs to the Palestinians and should be for a Palestinian state. And so this is a battle over to whom does the land belong. It's a battle over the birthright that we're told about in Genesis in chapter 25, where there we're told that Esau sold his birthright. So in Genesis, in chapter 25, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. And so the outcome of what's happening in the Middle East is the nations of the world are not going to be able to solve the problem. It is the Messiah who's going to step in and he's going to affirm the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it's from the nations dividing the land that his people will return to the land. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3, it says, For lo, the days come, says the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. Israel, northern kingdom, Judah, southern kingdom. And I'm going to cause them to return to the land that I gave their fathers, and they will possess it. So the subject here is Israel and Judah returning to the land. Then it goes on to say in verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, it's none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. So Jacob's trouble is associated not only with a conflict regarding to whom does the land belong, but it's also the time that the exile will end, that Israel and Judah will return to the land. And so that's why we are told that regarding this issue, the God of Israel is sovereign over it. And in Psalm 121, verse 4, we're told, He that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And then in Psalm 122, verse 6, we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and they will prosper that love thee. And so the outcome of this conflict is we will have the end of the exile and Messiah will set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. He will set up his kingdom. Israel will be the head of all nations and the nations will be taught the Torah. Isaiah in chapter 2 and verse 3. Now, remember always these words from 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He who says he abides in him, he who says that he's a believer 
in Yeshua as the Messiah, ought himself to walk, that means to live our lives, even as he walked. And how did Yeshua walk? How did he live his life? He followed the Torah of his father. Even so, he commanded those who believe upon him in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.